Recently released Q3 numbers show that investment volumes are still dropping across all property types. But with inflation leveling out, CBRE recently predicted the Federal Reserve may begin cutting interest rates as soon as March of 24, which could drive investment activity recovery by mid-24. Go to junipersquare.com forward slash state of real estate, all one word, to learn more about these and other CRE market trends, including why the U.S. market still strongly appeals to international investors and the boom in private credit. Again, that's junipersquare.com forward slash state of real estate, all one word, to learn more. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode, I sit down with Antonio Marquez, Principal and Managing Partner of Comunidad Partners. Antonio founded Comunidad Partners in honor of his family's immigrant heritage and to provide improved opportunities and a better life for the people who live in communities that the company serves. As chairman of the firm's investment committee, Antonio is responsible for strategic planning, culture building, and capital raising. Fostering the company's deep commitment to social impact, diversity, and equity, Antonio leads Comunidad Partners' value-add approach that creates inclusionary housing with a sense of place and cultural vibrancy that elevates its low-to-moderate income workforce residents. He spearheads the company's unique ESG model, which enhances economic returns while driving sustainable social and environmental value for all stakeholders. In today's conversation, we discuss the challenges Antonio once faced when trying to raise institutional capital and his subsequent success in beating the odds to raise a maiden institutional fund for workforce and affordable housing, the amazing programs Comunidad has created to support the well-being of their residents, and how federal, state, and local governments are combating the affordable housing crisis. Antonio, welcome to the show. Great being with you, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Let's dive right into it. Your bio says you founded Comunidad to honor your family's immigrant heritage, but why did you choose to focus on real estate? Maybe walk us through the origin story of how you started Comunidad. Yeah, so, you know, Comunidad was really started with this vision of what could happen when you have, you know, someone that has a background that's diverse, that comes from an immigrant family and wants to really kind of reimagine housing, reimagine how you think about community and community development and doing it in a supportive way and also doing it in a sustainable way that also has an economic, you know, outcome that's also favorable, not only the social piece. And for me, it started at a very young age. My father was a Hispanic immigrant. He came to the United States at the age of 17. So he came to the United States not speaking the language, really looking for his version of the American dream. And that version was just to provide you know, a better life than he had in, in Mexico. He's from Jalisco. He came from abject poverty. And he you know, worked in California. He was a farm worker. This is kind of pre-Chavez. So you know, before civil liberties and workers' rights and, and that sort of thing. So very harsh working conditions, particularly for an immigrant that didn't speak the language and is trying to find his way. But, you know, through grit and perseverance and believing and having the promise of the American dream, he, he ultimately scraped together enough change to start a company. And he started that company out of his garage. And his company was 
was really kind of distributing, importing and distributing Hispanic grocery products. So this was back at a time where there wasn't a lot of kind of ethnic Hispanic grocery items in a lot of grocery stores. There was this burgeoning demand that was coming from kind of the Hispanic demographic. I always remember this, you know, growing up as a kid, you know, he'd go to Bentonville, you know, Arkansas to talk to Walmart. He'd go to Cincinnati, Ohio to talk to Kroger. He'd go to Provo, Utah to talk to Albertsons. And none of those chains understood the product and they didn't because they didn't understand the, the customer because that wasn't their, at least at that time, they didn't realize that that could be their customer. So it was really a lost market opportunity for them. But he started like little mom and pop stores and kind of built it. And then ultimately got into, you know, a chain that really understood the demographic, understood the growth pattern that basically changed the trajectory of him and my family. And it just took that one buyer at that one chain store that really could transform uh, an immigrant family like that. And I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't. And so a lot of that appreciation and gratitude for the opportunity that my father had and ultimately made something of, I wanted to do something in my own way because he had his own success building a, a wholesale grocery distribution firm that was sold to retailers. And he also bought real estate. So he bought industrial real estate to warehouse the grocery items that he was distributing. He was also vertically integrated. And so, you know, I was the first one to graduate college on that side of the family. I had an affinity for commercial real estate. And I also grew up building businesses. So it was really kind of this mixture of building businesses, investing in real estate, doing something where you were really passionate about doing it in communities that you understand with a customer that you know, and have an acute understanding of. And so I took all that and said, well, how can I apply all this into the commercial real estate space and more specifically multifamily? And it became very, very clear and apparent to me. It was just like one of those aha moments, right? A very serendipitous is like, multifamily housing and culturally diverse neighborhoods with social impact, right? Because there was really no one doing it. And it just seemed so obvious to me. So that really charged me in terms of formulating strategy and the genesis behind Comunidad. And when you really look at us at our essence, we're really trying to kind of pay it forward in a meaningful way, because a lot of these communities that we serve at Comunidad are the communities that were instrumental in my family's success with their businesses but also doing it in a way that we can provide a service and experience for our residents. It's really value add. So a lot of our strategy revolves around how can we help our residents elevate in their lives, find better opportunities and looking at multifamily is more than just shelter, but looking at it as more of a vehicle for opportunity for many residents. And that's kind of been our investment thesis. It's paid a lot of dividends and we've been able to scale it and, here we are 15 years later and, and still sticking to our knitting. It's an amazing story. Let's make sure that we hit on a few points. So first of all, for those of our listeners that don't know, what does Comunidad mean? Why the name Comunidad? Well, Comunidad means community. And the reason that we chose Comunidad is because it represented what we mean. It's a, it's a very simple word, right? But it can mean a lot of different things. And for us, it, it meant how can we engender this sense of community in the multifamily apartments that we, because we, a lot of times we think of, you know, real estate as sticks and bricks and the built environment, right? And we get caught up in financial engineering and we get, you know, CapEx and construction and, fi- you know, all the different aspects, financial and capital markets. But I think 
as an industry, we lose sight of what are we really doing? What is our, our real kind of purpose and value add? And if, if we really think about it, it's, it's the customer that we're serving and the community that we're building. And if you do that the right way, if you're really kind of attuned to the, the wants, the needs, the cultural idiosyncrasies of your tenant, irrespective of if, if it's a workforce housing strategy or if it's an office strategy or if it's hospitality, you know, strategy, that's when I think you really actually are able to drive value and, you know, support what you're really doing from an investment strategy perspective. So that's why we kind of started with Comunidad. It's very simple. It's spelled with one M, by the way. We, we always get people spelling with two M's, but in Spanish, it's one M. But it really means how do we focus on people and community and, and doing it in a way that really drives value for all stakeholders. So here you are, you're the son of an immigrant who came to this country escaping abject poverty. You grew up, you know, as you said, investing in small, you know, running small businesses yourself, whatever that means. And maybe you can share with us kind of some examples of those. Oh, I've got plenty. And, and you mentioned that, you know, you realize that you want to give back and you want to do something like the, ben, you know, do something to benefit the community that you and your family benefited from. But one of the common challenges is how do you bring more diversity into our industry at a leadership level? So how did you kind of become acquainted with this idea of commercial real estate as a career and investment management as a kind of subset of that? Was there a person? Did you have a mentor? Like, do you learn this at school? Did you just, did it come to you? How, how did you choose to develop a career around being a multifamily socially oriented, multifamily investor, owner, operator? I mean, if you look back at like my background and where I came from, where my family came from, and then where I am today, this, this shouldn't happen. I mean, it should happen, but odds, you know, say that it should rarely if ever happen. And that is the unfortunate part. But I literally pinch myself all the time and just... I'm so grateful that I am here. And I frankly, not only is it an opportunity, it's a responsibility, I feel, not only to Comunidad and our team members, but really kind of this whole ecosystem of other, other talented, diverse individuals um, that are working in the profession now, or even that are coming you know, up from high school on, because I, I never, I frankly wouldn't, I didn't know how to make money in commercial real estate. I really didn't. All I knew is that it's one of the largest asset classes in the world if not the largest asset class, I knew it could be a wealth creation tool. And I knew that particularly in housing, there wasn't a lot of innovation, particularly in workforce and affordable housing. So those were my kind of, you know, North stars, if you will. And honestly, when I started, I said, you know, the math will, I'll figure out, right? If I really deliver a great product, I'm focused on this space. Then I just felt that the, the natural end result of that would be some economic outcomes that were positive. And, and so I didn't have a track record. I didn't have a network, Brandon. I did a lot was I just, tr I knew that I wanted to do this because there was a big void and I felt that we could, we could fill that void in a meaningful way. But what I started to do is just go to conferences, meet people, ask a lot of stupid questions. Because a lot of times, you know, stupid questions have, can have some of the most enlightening responses and not being fearful about that, right? And being even vulnerable in some cases because there, there may have been obvious questions to other people, but that's okay. I wasn't going to have pride to not learn and you know thirst for getting better every single day. And I think that also comes from, you talked about you know kind of the, the stories that I had growing up. 
growing up in an immigrant family where failure was not an option and we had to earn everything. That was kind of that fight that burned inside me that when, you know, when you're really passionate about something, you don't look the other way. And so, you know, things like even with my family, it's like me and my father would go down to the Mexican border to pick up, you know, some jalapenos and some jaritos and some, some other goods and items. And then we'd go and we'd distribute it throughout a certain market just in the back of a van, sleeping in a van, those types of things where you just build that work ethic or my father, you know, even in high school, after the company started to really grow, he, you know, and I started really working even in the summers and in more depth, he didn't put me on like, in a supervisor's position or a position of prestige or anything that effect. I was literally on the floor. And we had, you know, it was a manufacturing plant. I was on the floor sweeping the grounds and mopping stuff up. And those were some of the best lessons that really kind of build character, build worth ethic, and make you appreciate, you know, things that much more. And so that's all fed into kind of how we've grown the company and built the company. And I think it's the difference between uh, going that extra mile and doing a little bit more and working a little bit extra to, to have something that's great versus being just any other firm and being ultimately a commodity. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to decommoditize a space and provide a unique experience and unique product to the market. And it's served us well with that approach. That's awesome. So here you are, you're, you know, you've grown up in this family, the grit, like we talked about, what is it? 15, we're 15 years in. How long ago did you found Comunidad? 15 years ago. 15 years ago. So what are the headline stats today? And then we'll work backwards. We'll unpack your strategy and what it is that you do. So kind of give us the, the baseball card, if you will, in terms of uh, your stats today. So we're a vertically integrated investment management firm. We've done about $2 billion in AUM, 15,000 units across 22 different markets, mostly you know, ACT rehab, but we all have also done development, but all workforce and affordable housing. So there's been no mission drift, no style drift, and really kind of at the nexus of housing affordability, ESG, diversity, equity, inclusion, and prop tech is also a big component of our strategy that's kind of interwoven throughout all those other dimensions. So let's talk about what is workforce housing and how is that different from affordable housing? Yeah, workforce housing, and there's a lot of different definitions and sometimes it's contextual, but our definition is uh, 60 to 120% of AMI, of area median income that's established by HUD. And so we ULIze definition as our standard. And at the end of the day, that's kind of the technical definition. Our kind of entrepreneurial qualitative definition is if folks have too high of an income to qualify for government subsidy, but not high enough of of an income to afford luxury, you know, A-class multifamily or even to buy a home, they're this kind of missing middle where they're stuck on either end and they don't have any support. We feel that there's a a huge need for an owner-operator firm, development firm to actually provide for those families and those, those populations. And so it's something that is on both ends of the spectrum from A-class to kind of affordable, like capitally affordable, which is truly subsidized through project-based Section 8, LIHTC, and that sort of thing. That's where most of the capital has gone historically. And so that's also why there's some inefficiencies in this you know, working ha- workforce housing segment and an area that we focus a lot in terms of institutionalizing best practices, services, again, providing a differentiated living experience for residents because 
a lot of other groups are, are not doing anything outside of just the cookie cutter approach to housing. So that's kind of our, our definition of the space. So you, you touched on workforce and then affordable is, you mentioned, I think in your answer, it's, it's light tech, it's government subsidized. Is that the big difference, which is affordable has subsidies and workforce doesn't necessarily have subsidies from the federal government? Correct. Yeah, that's the primary distinction. So where do you invest? And then what does your community look like? It sounds like it's more than just an apartment building where people come to put their head down at night or where they where they live. So talk to us about the markets that you're in and then you know the assets themselves and what makes them different versus the commodity product that you mentioned. So in, from a market perspective, so we're invested in, in the Sunbelt markets throughout the country. But even when you actually kind of drill into even those markets and MSAs, from a sub-market perspective, if you think of like these markets as a kind of concentric circles where you've got this urban core, white collar, highest income levels, highest socioeconomic, we're kind of looking for assets that are in the outside of that kind of urban core concentric circle. So suburbs, exurbs, you know, those types of markets. So we're kind of the gray collar and blue collar. So the folks that are servicing the office buildings that are in the retail, that are the store managers that may be, you know, at restaurants, those folks that that really make cities and economies operate and hum and productive. You know, when we think back at COVID and pre-COVID, you know, we would get a lot of skeptics of our strategy and said, listen, when there's a downturn, you know, those are the first jobs that are going to go away, right? So you're going to be very vulnerable. And we just don't think that this is a durable investment thesis. And so what happened in COVID was a completely complete opposite. We saw the value of the essential worker and the teachers and the nurses and, you know, the medical practitioners and others. And those were our residents. And so a lot of our strategy revolves around knowing your customer, you know, knowing your resident, understanding what makes them tick. And some of that is having the cultural aptitude to understand that, having, you know, lived experiences that are shared, and then applying an experience that it isn't commoditized, as we were talking before. And, you know, I, I really look at kind of the real estate itself as a conduit, you know, just really a conduit to providing services and support. And so we'll do a lot of different things. So we do, I mean, we have events all the time. So that's one thing. There's we, you, we always want an excuse to have some sort of event or some sort of party or festivity and that sort of thing. And that kind of you know matches up with the culture with Cinco de Mayo or El Grito or Halloween, you know, for the kids and that sort of thing. But even beyond that, beyond kind of the social and fun, we also are thinking about our residents from a health perspective, an education perspective, an economic advancement perspective. Because these are the things that families really need to, to have an opportunity, to have the potential to provide and, and rise and elevate and, and get better jobs and better income levels. And, you know, my father didn't, again, didn't speak the language. So that was a major impediment to his assimilation. I think some of his opportunity set that he had. So providing ESL, you know, at our communities and providing not only Spanish, but, you know, depending on the communities and their language, providing ESL that is tailored to what they need. We've rolled out a virtual healthcare program. Many of our residents are uninsured or underinsured. Some of them are contractors and they may not have insurance at all. So they're very vulnerable to kind of the health resiliency. And so for us, 
you know, offering a virtual healthcare option that provided 24-7 access to nurse and nurse practitioners and doctors and prescriptions and diagnosis and that sort of stuff, which covered physical and mental health, was a game changer because, you know, residents realized that we care for one. And two, it made them, it created a lot of loyalty and built a really sticky experience within our communities. And for us, it made a lot of business sense because if our residents are healthier, then that means that they don't have to take as much days off of work, right? They can work nine to five. They can be there for their kids. They can support their families. They're more productive. They're earning more. They're healthier. They're happier. You know, all those things where you actually get the, the symbiotic relationship because we we reject the notion that like social impact is kind of, you know, there is concessions to that because of what I just described. If you're investing in the right way, you can't do just all social impact indiscriminately. But if you invest in the right social impact investments and that drives value for your resident, then that also drives value for the property. And that's where that symbiosis and that value, you really complements each other. And are those services that you offered are they offered by Comunidad or are they done in partnership with other providers? So take virtual healthcare, for example, who's running that program? Yeah, great question. So we started a nonprofit. So we run the founders of a nonprofit by the name of Veritas Impact Partners. Historically, we did all of our impact in-house and we had our asset managers doing impact. We outgrew that and we realized the need for having a dedicated team, a dedicated resource, a dedicated funding source for these impact services. And so the virtual healthcare is now housed through Veritas Impact Partners. And so they administer the program. They go through the enrollment process with residents. It's all HIPAA regulated, but it's a partnership with Aetna and CVS through Teladoc is a service. And so it was a first of its kind kind of multifamily program that has been a great success. But yeah, it's provided by Veritas, paid for by the property, but also subsidized as well. So we're not paying full freight. But the SROI on it is significant because of the retention and the word of mouth resident referrals, organic traffic and leases that occur. Because when families are really getting taken care of and they felt they're getting dignity again and they're getting support and they feel like they matter, then they're going to refer all their friends and family. And then that's when it becomes this virtuous cycle. So how does that just moving to the real estate side of things a little bit, because I think what you're doing at the asset is extremely interesting and impactful. How does that impact your occupancy? How does it impact your, you know, your kind of turnover of units? What do you see from an ROI? You mentioned the SROI, which I think is social uh, return on investment. How about the kind of economic return on investment side of things? Is there a correlation? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, candidly, you're not going to say, an after-school program or a virtual health program, you're never going to find this perfect correlation between, you know, this program is translating in this, this many bips of NOI. But what we have found is that when you look at the continuum of services that we provide in a holistic way, and you compare our assets to the peer set, to a benchmark set that does not provide social impact, and controlling for all other factors, right? So location, vintage, amenities, you know, when you control for all of those factors and they're comparable and like kind, and the only distinguishing trait or characteristic of a property is social impact, we've been able to demonstrate consistently that NOI is high single digit to even, depends on the market, but to, to low double digit improvement on NOI. And the reason for that is exactly what you said, Brandon. I mean, we're able to keep occupancy higher. 
our collection rates are higher, we have lower delinquency rates, we have this whole kind of eviction prevention program where I hate evictions. We hate evictions. We really do not like them. It's it's a complete last resort. We want to keep residents in their homes and make you know ensure stability for them. But what that also does is when we can keep residents in their homes, it reduces our turnover costs and marketing costs and payroll costs and all sorts of other costs. So it all flows to the bottom line, NOI. And that's how we're able to demonstrate kind of the business case and the economic case for, for this type of strategy. What you said about evictions, I think, is really interesting because you also mentioned that you invest in the Sunbelt. And I've talked to a lot of multifamily, not necessarily affordable workforce, who choose the Sunbelt because of their kind of pro-landlord rights, if you will, the ability to evict a tenant for non-payment. Can you talk a little bit more about what that program looks like and um, kind of how it's helped your tenants? And, and you already talked about kind of what the benefit to your business is, but I think it's interesting just to unpack how you can run a successful business without needing to rely on eviction as a primary mechanism for increasing rents and turning over units. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think just fundamentally speaking, you're going to have outsized evictions if you have just bad management practices in the first place and you do not have great engagement with your residents. You don't have a relationship and, and communication going on. And so that starts with your sites. And that's one of the other reasons of being vertically integrated and why it's important for a strategy like this. It starts with your site staff. It starts with your regional staff. It starts with your asset managers. But even you know me, even during COVID, I reached out to residents. I had a dozen different residents that I talked to, to really have a finger on the pulse. And so I think from our perspective, we want to make sure that we're articulating and that residents are feeling and we're conveying the fact that we care. We have to run a business, right? There are rules, but we care. And I, I want that permeated throughout the organization. And so a conversation if someone is missing rent, for instance, isn't pay rent by this date or else. It's Let's have a conversation. You know, what are your challenges in life? And when we really understand and kind of unpack what's going on in that person and that family's life, and we understand, oh, they just lost a job. Well, we've got a partnership with Prologis and they have vocational skills training and they've got job placement with all of their tenants. So Amazon and Walmart and Target and you name it, right? And so those tenants are really looking for employees that fit our demographic, that's our workforce. And so that's one of those situations where if they're out of a job, we can help place them in a job that in many instances may be better than the last job that they have. And it's more durable. And a lot of times it's higher paying too. So, you know, the whole point is to make sure that you have these interventions and engagements so that you really understand their story and you can help them get back on their feet. And sometimes it's not just job. Maybe it's, you know, we, we need something else. We need transportation. So let's plug them into the public transportation on a discounted basis. Sometimes it's just food. I mean, it can be as elemental as food. So we partner with food banks to do that. So, you know, it's those conversations first. And that in and of itself, when you have that sort of culture and that relationship, that reduces your eviction risk significantly. Beyond that, if it really, if we have more issues beyond that, we'll, we'll look at payment plans, we'll look at rental assistance, we'll work with nonprofits that have rental assistance. Federal rental assistance have, has basically wound down entirely. So we got to get creative of other you know, tools. Ususu is another provider of, of zero interest loans to residents that are having payment issues. So we really go to great lengths to help them. And when you do and you get them back on their feet, 
they were so grateful for that. And you just become created a very loyal fan and a resident that normally lives in your property for a long period of time. And that's our end game, our end goal. We want our residents to live in our communities for a long period of time and support them. So that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that that perspective. You mentioned housing and you mentioned, you know, renters assistance. Let's talk a little bit about the affordable housing crisis in this country. It's a very politicized issue. I know that there's some bipartisan support right now that are providing some tailwinds for this sector. Can you talk about kind of what's happening from your perspective and, you know, why you think this is uh, going to help advance the sector going forward? Yeah, I think it's a fascinating time in America today where, you know, we have a couple of different things. I mean, you know, coming out of COVID, we had this massive run up in rents, which was problematic. It put a lot of pressure on renters throughout the country. And naturally, you know, there was inflation and insurance and property taxes and material cost increases and that sort of thing. So that was part of the challenge. The other challenge is that we just don't have enough supply. And we need to create more, we need to preserve, and we need to you know, create more supply. And fortunately, this was not the case, I'd even say five years ago. Fortunately, many municipalities and localities, local jurisdictions, uh, city council members, planning departments, that sort of thing, get it. Many do. And at a federal level, this has gotten a lot of momentum, a lot of bipartisan support in terms of trying to address the affordable housing crisis in this country. And so from my perspective, I'm actually very encouraged in terms of some of the work that's that's being done right now at a federal, state, and local level. You've got Senator Wyden, who's a senator out of Oregon that has actually introduced legislation to really support kind of the creation of new housing. Got MyTech, which is the Middle Income Housing Tax Credit that's being proposed to really support more creation of this product for residents of different income levels. So you can have like more of a mixed income kind of housing product, uh, which I think is hugely beneficial. And then at a local level, you have a lot more cities that are coming in with subsidies, grants, density bonuses, a relief for parking regulations. You have accessory dwelling units, which is a really interesting new space. California's, you know, seeing a lot of promise there. And then also property tax abatements. Property tax abatements has been a massive one, can be a game changer. It's the difference between being able to produce affordable housing or producing luxury housing that's going to displace. I mean, it's as simple as that. And you're seeing a lot more, again, local jurisdictions that are adopting that under a nonprofit structure or PFC structure, much of which we've actually adopted at Comunidad. and, And that has allowed us to kind of preserve housing and maintain rents at affordable levels. So there's a lot of movement happening in that space. And, you know, you can't always say this (laughs) in politics, but I'm actually pretty optimistic about the long game. The short game is going to be a challenge as it always is when you've got to, you know, make this sort of transformative shift. But from a long-term perspective, I'm I'm pretty optimistic. So before we can benefit from the long-term, what is the current kind of near-term horizon zero market fundamentals? What's the environment today on the ground kind of operating in this, you know, with this housing affordability crisis all around us, trying to build product, manage product, and invest in products that doesn't always exist. So what is, what's the market like? What's, what's happening on the ground? Tell us a little bit about, you know, give us a sense of where cap rates are, what the supply side looks like, and you know any kind of details that you can on kind of recent transactions or kind of how the market's performing given the 
kind of current macroeconomic conditions? Yeah, so we just, you know, there was a Wall Street Journal article that was just released that the multifamily industry experienced the, the first dip in rents in, I think it was seven or eight years. So it's been a very long bull run, you know, maybe with ex- exception to one period, but it's been a, a very long kind of trajectory in, in terms of where the growth has been. And so you've got that in conjunction with capital markets disruption. And so transaction velocity has fallen off a cliff, largely, you know, due to just where interest rates are at, plus I think eroding fundamentals and just, you know, capital. Although there is a lot of capital out there, it's just not being put to work just because there is this kind of recalibration that's occurring in the market. And so from my perspective, I think one of the bigger concerns in the workforce and affordable housing space is that you know the the cur- the owners that currently own assets will probably not continue to invest into them, and that will degrade kind of the physical plant and the communities themselves, and also you know potentially put the affordability at risk. If you know some more if some passive owners are now really trying to push rents, it may be hard for them to do that, but they may be more inclined to do that in this particular instance. And the folks that were already aggressive. Probably I've already created a lot of displacement and are are probably, you know, probably having challenges because they were aggressive. They were trying to get top of market rents. They were paying top price. They were probably taking a lot of leverage. So I think, you know, part of that concern, you know, certainly kind of a, an intermediate, short to intermediate concern of where, you know, does the market go and what is the stability of some of these these assets from a preservation perspective. The other thing that I think is interesting to watch is even the new transactions that are ultimately being executed with interest rates that are higher, with costs that are higher, is that going to put even more upward pressure? Because if you're assuming a loan and that loan was you know, executed four or five years ago, you're in the money, you probably don't have as much pressure to increase rents, especially in a softening kind of fundamentals market. But new debt that's coming in at a higher cost of capital is probably forced to, to increase rents, which I think is going to create more attrition at the worst time, frankly. And so so that's kind of a dynamic that we're watching that we think is really going to be telling. From a cap rate perspective, when you have you know rates that have more than doubled and you you know we've seen cap rates that have not more than doubled, but they've increased significantly. So there is still kind of this disconnect that's occurring in the market. Part of that is just, you know, there isn't a lot of inventory out in the market. I think once some of the, you know, some of the denial that is probably occurring in the market and the staying power is no longer there, we're going to start to see more inventory and then we'll see a real market clearing price. Right now, a lot of the cap rates are in the mid to high fours, which for us is actually still too low. And I think they'll probably settle out. I mean, it depends on the market, but, you know, somewhere in the fives. And who knows, you know, right where anything goes, but it's it's still, you know, it's been a very much a rising market with a lot of uncertainty. I think from our perspective, what we're trying to do is just look at the fundamentals, look at the fundamentals of the asset, look at the fundamentals of the dirt and location, identify opportunities where we feel that we have some sort of operating advantage, right, that we can truly drive value and we're not looking at cap rate compression to, you know, really save the day. And th- those are kind of the principles that I think will stand the test of time and also make sure that you don't over leverage. So all those things 
have been kind of signatures of our investment philosophy and still actually ring true today, if not even more, more importantly. That's kind of what we're seeing and how we're kind of viewing the market today. So thank you. That, that's helpful. I, I think it ties in nicely with kind of capital, capital sources, credit, two things I want to touch on. One would love to, I saw that you recently, you know, started a, a credit platform. So kind of what is the goal of doing that in this market environment? What do you hope to accomplish? Tell us a little bit about that. And then two, I think it's interesting because, you know, when we first met many years ago, your capital was primarily high net worth investors. You were raising capital and doing and transacting on a deal by deal basis. And now you can give us the details, but you have, you're an institutional investment manager in addition to that, or, or in place of that, you can tell me, and you have an institutional fund with institutional capital partners into an asset class that sometimes is perceived to be too risky by institutional capital because of all the things that you just said. You know, you've painted a very compelling picture of the social aspect in the double or triple bottom line. But for some institutions who don't have the ability to get so close to the operator, to get so close to the asset, to truly understand it, you say affordable and they just think risk, risk, risk. So maybe you can kind of talk to us about you know, what you've learned both through the launch of your credit platform, but also the transformation of your business from a non-institutional business to an institutional business. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was very acute to me when we started this business that this was a business that was hyper inefficient, just not a lot of institutional capital. I I even remember I would go to this institutional investment firm's office and I won't name names, but you know, we were talking about workforce housing as a legitimate asset class. And they said, listen, I get why you're saying it. I get the numbers, I get the statistics, but never say that outside the hall because you'll be tarred and feathered. (laughs) So I, and I think uh, that's what represented the opportunity because you get this herd mentality and it's all about risk, right? And understanding risk and folks that, you know, either don't have the information or don't have the willingness to kind of really understand a market or dig deep or roll up their sleeves, then you're really not going to understand the risk. And I get why those positions and those perceptions were kept. Now, that has changed in a very meaningful way over the last five, six years from institutions as more data has actually surfaced and was validated in terms of just the strength of workforce and affordable housing. It's pretty simple. You know, the industry has insatiable demand and supply that's contracting quickly. And so when you have those dynamics and you demonstrate that through data, you can demonstrate the liquidity of the, the asset class. You can see just governmental agencies and GSEs like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the regulator FHFA that are actually trying to push more of this business and provide more liquidity and provide, you know, better terms and rates and providing you kind of financing arbitrage, that data and that information is is compelling and too important to ignore. And I think that's why there's been so much interest in this space. And so, you know, from our perspective, that's great for, you know, more investment in the space and shoring up the asset class provides more efficiency, which I think is good particularly from an exit strategy perspective. But I think what it really does, it puts more pressure for owner operators to differentiate, right? And to drive true alpha. Because if capital markets are coming in and commoditizing at some level, you know, you really need to demonstrate from an operator perspective that you're doing something different to truly drive value. So I think that's what kind of the next, if I'm looking ahead, the next generation of workforce housing is. I still think there's going to be institutional investors, but there's going to be a premium 
and a strong desire for operators that you know really know what they're doing, our experience, have some level of vertical integration and offering something unique. So the SEC's recently come out with an increased focus on greenwashing and not only on the environmental side, but also on the social and governance. You mentioned this need to be more differentiated. When you zoom out and you go back to your experiences when you know you were sworn to never utter those words outside of the four walls that you were in, what do you think our industry needs to do when it comes to, you know, let's not focus on environmental so much right now, because there's there's a lot of talk on that. But, you know, when you think about the social impact and you think about the affordability, the housing affordability crisis, what is it that our industry needs to be focused on in order to solve this problem, the systemic problem that exists today? A multitude of things. I think we talked about supply earlier. I think that's one of the, the biggest pieces, frankly. And I'm not just talking about new supply and new creation. I think we need to find innovative strategies for preservation. And, uh, you know, it's it's significantly cheaper to preserve a unit at certain income levels than it is to create new. And it has the added benefit of not having as much carbon, you know, impact. And I know we want to steer, we want to keep this on S&G, but it has that double benefit of having a social support for uh, providing more affordability and actually reducing kind of carbon consequences. The other piece is also just, you know, focusing on the customer and the community. And I know that seems pretty abstract and not everyone can underwrite that or P&L, but it makes a difference. I mean, you don't have products like Starbucks and Disney and Coca-Cola and all these really valued brands that arguably are commodities, right? But they create outsized value because of the experience, the quality, the texture, the message, you know, all the things that come along with those brands and those products and those experiences. And so I look at multifamily in a very, very similar fashion. And we got to get out of our own way. We got to get out of... And I remember this very vividly when I got into the business originally, where I was talking about doing having a soccer court in one of our communities. And we had property management companies like, oh, you don't need you don't need that. It was a tennis court. Nobody used it. It looked like an apocalypse <laughs> sort of situation, something you see in a sci-fi movie. It's pretty depressing. But the you know, the default response is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. And you know, for me, it's if just because it's it ain't broken doesn't mean it can't be better. And I think, you know, part of that is what we need to be focused on as well. And then lastly, I'd also say that just in terms of our industry and how we message what we do as an industry, there's a lot of great people in our industry. We do a lot of, you know, there's a lot of philanthropy. And even on the social impact piece, I think we need to be, you know, carrying that message so that really public perception understands that, you know, we're an ally and we are aligned because what's good for communities and what's good for residents is good for the industry. And that's where that partnership takes form. And you can do that on a public stage. You can do it on a political stage. You can also do that as an industry by creating standards and frameworks. So I work with the the Multifamily Impact Council, creating frameworks and standards for social and governance in particular, and diversity and equity inclusion so that there is kind of this rubric that everyone can understand and a common language that people can understand and rely on to provide transparency and aligns with kind of UNSDGs and GRESB and all these other things that all these other you know frameworks that haven't figured it out because it isn't as specialized or contextual. And I think that also will help 
kind of illuminate the work that we're doing and, and help solve at least one piece of the puzzle. Well, I think that's a that's a great place to wrap up. We've covered a lot of ground. We talked a little bit about your the founding story of Comunidad. We talked about what affordable and workforce means to you. We talked about the impact that you're having, the current tailwinds in the industry. We covered a lot of ground. There's a lot more that we could cover, but in the interest of time, Antonio, thank you so much for joining me today. If anybody wants to reach out to you or learn more about Comunidad, what's the best way for them to find you or get in touch with you? Yeah, comunidadpartners.com or LinkedIn, just Antonio Marquez. You know, feel free to just ping me. I'm open. I'm always you know, willing to help people that really care about this work and are dedicated to it. So please reach out to me. And Brandon, thank you. You know, Thank you for having me on. Always fun to hang out with you and talk through this. And you, know, you, you took me down memory lane. So I, it's always nostalgic. And I really appreciate you and you know, talking through these themes and these topics. Likewise. Thank you, Antonio. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. Subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next time.